the Sunday Sermons Podcast. Also, one more disclaimer before we get started for real is I know that holidays are painful for many. And one of the things that's really important for us here is that you are real. And if today is a painful day, ask somebody for prayer. You don't have to put on a happy face and pretend that Father's Day is your favorite day. Uh, It's okay. We we will be there for you. We will comfort you. We will support you in the weeks to come. Uh, But but for many of us, and I'm one of them, it's so thankful. uh, We actually do have some dads who love Jesus and, and have taught us to love Jesus and do their best to set a good example. And it's a great time to honor them. And so to all of my brothers out there that are trying your best to do those things, Happy Father's Day. (laughs) True story. All right, here we go. Today is the third installment in a series that's simply called Love. And we're telling a lot of love stories, not the kind of stories that you're you're trying to figure out if two people are going to end up together or not. Not that kind of love story. Love stories in that people are living out the kind of love that God has for us, the kind of love that God commands for us, the kind of love that God empowers us to live out. And we need these because it's so easy to misunderstand love. It's so easy to get it wrong. It's so easy to hear something and think, oh, that sounds so great, so sweet, so wonderful. And it's actually not. For example, the great theologian Winnie the Pooh once said, if you live to be 100, I hope to be 100 minus one day so I never have to live a day without you. Isn't that sweet? No, it's not. Read that one more time. Winnie the Pooh is a little jerk. If you live to be 100, I hope I live to be 100 minus one day so I never have to live without you. What he's hoping is that Christopher Robin is going to spend his last day on earth grieving for his little bear friend. That's not love. That's selfishness. That's not okay. And it's that easy to miss what real love is. If it feels like it, if it sounds like it, we want to go, oh, well, that's love. We all have to keep going back to the prototype in the scriptures. What does it look like when God loves us? What does it look like when Jesus loves it? What does it look like when somebody in the story actually gets it right? So that's why we're looking at all these love stories. And today we're going to start with a guy named Jonathan. Jonathan was the crown prince of Israel. His dad was uh, Saul, who was a terrible person. And we're not going to talk about him that much. He comes to the story a couple times, but he was a bad king. He was a bad military leader. He was a bad dad. He was, he, he's not the example in the story. How he produced a son like Jonathan, I have no idea. It's just the grace of God. But Jonathan was a good Guy. The very first moment we meet him is in 1 Samuel chapter 13. The very first thing he does is win a victory against the Philistines for Israel. Well, the Philistines retaliate. They send three garrisons against Israel. And his dad panics. This is the moment in the story, if you know the story of Saul, this is the moment where he doesn't wait long enough, doesn't wait for the prophet and the priest and everybody who's supposed to make sacrifices. And he offers them himself. And effectively, the prophet Samuel tells him, this is, you just lost the kingdom. You and your, your descendants just lost it in this moment. But in the midst of all this, Jonathan is still the, the, a really good crown prince. He is actually doing everything he needs to do. So 
Israel's panicking. Saul is panicking. Saul has some of the soldiers off on one, one little spot and they're trying to fast and pray and decide if God really wants them to fight the enemy. By the way, if you know something is God's will, if it's really clearly in the Bible, you don't have to fast and pray about that. Just do it. Let me save you some time. Can you, can, you know what I'm saying? God, is it really your will that I share the truth about Jesus with somebody in love? Yes. Yeah. You don't need to spend any time like fasting and praying about that. You just need to ask him when and where. Okay. God, is it really your will that I stick this marriage out and just keep investing in this family even when it gets hard? Yes. You don't need to worry about it. Okay. You follow me? Well, here's Saul and he's going, God, should we really fight the Philistines? Yes. While he's off doing that, his son and his armor bearer go off by themselves. So here we are at the end of chapter 13. It says, now a garrison of the Philistines has gone out to the pass of Michmash. This is a real place. And someday I hope and pray I get to go visit. I'd love to be this. I'd like to try and climb that cliff and just see how hard it would be. Um, I don't think you're allowed to, but I'm going to ask if I ever get to go there. But it's between these two cliffs, Bozes and Senna. It's called the Valley of Michmash. It's a great military place because if you're fighting on either side of that big valley, you have to either throw swords or shoot arrows. You can't just charge So that's kind of a limitation there. And if the other army is walking underneath, they're kind of like fish in a barrel. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's pretty easy to, it's a good strategic place for them to be. Now, in the midst of all this, that's when this, this first little part of the story happens. And Jonathan, it's, it's kind of misleading because it starts out one day. It sounds like once upon a time, but it means one day in the middle of all this garbage, one day in the middle of all the people of Israel hiding out in caves and, and Saul over there trying to decide if he's going to go to war or not. And all this other stuff that's going on. This is what happens. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, come. Let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So the two of them go over and they see this army up at the top of that that cliff. And Jonathan says, you know what? If it's God's will, we could win this thing. Because it's not about how many people are in the army. It's about whose side are you on? And, and here's his, his armor bearer's reply. Says his armor bearer said to him, do all that is your mind inclines to. I am with you as your mind is, so is mine. If anything wants to tell you about the kind of guy Jonathan was, somebody that's going to put that much trust in him that quick to do something that looks crazy, that should tell you something about what a good guy this Jonathan was. So he says, okay, I got a plan. This is a way to test God that's actually maybe a good idea sometimes. Maybe not every time. Because he's not asking if, he's asking when or where. He says, I'll tell you what, let's let them see us. And if they just tell us they're going to kill us, then we'll just stay down here. But if they invite us up, that's God telling us he's going to give us the victory. Okay? Well, the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer saying, come up to us and we'll show you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Again, notice, notice his character here. I know it doesn't sound a lot like love yet, but his character is the same all the way through the way he fights, the way he loves everything about him is brave and wise and godly. 
In all three of these you see right here in this story. And notice he doesn't say, hey, we got this. Look at us. We, we're, I'm the crown prince. You're my armor bearer. You, you have to carry my stuff. You're even stronger than me. Like, we got this. That's not what he says. He says, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. We're going to win this, not because of who we are, but because who God is, and we represent his people. That's why we're going to win. So they go in and they win. They start, they kill off a bunch of the Philistines, just the two of them. They set them to retreat. They go running off. Everybody else hears the commotion. Saul and everybody that was with him, they give up their fasting and praying if they should fight and just start fighting like they should have been in the first place. All the people come out of the caves and all the other places they were hiding. They all join in the fight for Samuel 14, 22. Likewise, when all the Israelites who had gone into hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also followed closely after them in battle. Because it's inspiring when you see somebody living out this kind of bravery, this kind of wisdom, this kind of trust in God, whether that's in battle or whether that's in love. You see the same things in a story that happens a couple chapters later when David fights Goliath. How many have ever heard that story? That's what I thought, okay? Same thing though. David, if you notice, he doesn't go out there and go, yeah, Goliath, you're big, but you don't want any of me. (laughs) He, He says, how dare you? How dare you talk smack against God and his people? Who do you think you are? Who he was and how big he was didn't have anything to do with it at all. And when he fought Goliath, God let him win. And when people saw that happen, they got courage again and went and fought him. Here's something that you're going to see, not only in this story. We're going to switch gears here in a second. It becomes even more of a love story in the biblical sense of love, God's kind of love here in a second. But you already see it. That's what I hope you see. If you're looking, it's already in these battle scenes. You already see these elements. Love plays its part well. Would you say that out loud with me? Love plays its part well. Jonathan isn't trying to be the king. David isn't trying to be the king yet, even though he's already been anointed. They're just doing what they need to do. And when we are showing love to people, guess what? It's gonna always be the bravest and the wisest and the godliest option every single time. It's not always going to look like a battle. Sometimes it might look a little bit like a battle. But it's going to be the bravest and the wisest and the godliest thing we can do when we choose to love someone else. Say this with me as well, if you would. Love works with others for the greater good. Jonathan just teamed up with his armor bearer, but he, he, they were equal in that moment. He wasn't like, hey, I got this. And David was alone against Goliath, not because he was so arrogant, but because nobody else would stand with him in that moment. And whenever everybody else joined in with both of them, they're like, come on, let's get this. We're just representing God and his people. Neither one of them had this big arrogant thing going on. And that's how love works. Love plays its part well, and it works with others for the greater good. Here's two more words to write down if you're writing down the words, and you've got them all so far. Selfless, relentless. Love is always going to be selfless and it's going to be relentless. 
So now you see David and Jonathan meet. And on this day, it, it happens in 1 Samuel 18. Jonathan does something that's really significant that a lot of people misunderstand, especially lately. I've seen a lot of people really, really dramatically misunderstand what's going on here. But what happens is after David beats Goliath and all the, everything falls down, David is about to get to marry Jonathan's sister. Uh, He's going to get to marry the princess. That's one of the prizes that's happening. And in all this moment, Jonathan, the crown prince, instead of being mad, instead of going, hey, this guy is my new arch enemy, he very deliberately and symbolically takes off all the stuff that represents him as a military hero and him as the crown prince and gives it to David. That robe that he takes off, he's not just randomly taking his clothes off. He's taking off his princely robe. He's taking off that outfit that says, that's the prince. He's going, guess what, David? You're the anointed one. I am now on team David. That's why his dad hated it so much. I don't know about you, but I hear stories like that. I hear about somebody being incredibly brave or being incredibly selfless, incredibly faithful in love. And I sometimes wonder, could I do that? Could anybody do that? How is it possible? And the truth is, it's not without Jesus, but it is with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's why we die to ourselves and are raised to a new life. That's why we're crucified with Christ and then not only forgiven of our sins, but we have the Holy Spirit of God himself put inside of us. We are empowered by Jesus to love this way. That's what Paul's talking about when he says some of these things. This sounds so outlandish and there's no way anybody could live up to this, but he writes them expecting us to. And so God expects us to. Galatians 2, for though the law, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're empowered not only by Jesus' example, by his commands, but by Jesus himself, by his Holy Spirit living in us. That's why we can actually even aspire at all to obey these other things that Paul and Jesus himself said. For example, he says, do nothing, nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Or in Romans, love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The competition among Christians should never be about who gets the most respect and who gets the most power. It's who shows the most respect. Who shows the most love. And we can do that with his help. Should we be concerned? Is that a cell phone? That was impressive, whatever that was. 
Zig Ziglar said something about friendship that I think applies to love and it, it, it applies very well to this whole idea of how you live and how you love being bravery, being wisdom, being choosing the most godly choice every time, being selfless, being relentless. He says, if you go out looking for a friend, you're going to find they're very scarce. If you go out to be a friend, you'll find them everywhere. And that really is how it works, guys. If you're going to go through a string of relationships, friendships, Sunday school classes, dating relationships, marriages, you, whatever kind of relationships you want to you put in that blank, you're going to try to go through life. And what you're trying to do is find somebody somewhere that's going to treat you the way you want to be treated. You're going to be really lonely. Can I just be straight out with you? You're going to have a really frustrating hard life. But if you go out into the world the way Jesus commands and models and empowers us to do, you're going to have a huge impact on other people. You're going to have a pretty fun life because you're going to be focused on showing them honor, making sure that they get treated the way they want to be treated. And that changes the game entirely. How many know what I'm talking about? Does this make sense? Praise God. Here's the th- third big idea about love. Then we're going to go back into the story of David and Jonathan. And we're going to go to Jesus. We're going to look at a story. You probably are like, how is that even in this? But I, I promise it'll make sense at the end. But say these four words with me. Love never seeks glory. One more time. Love never seeks glory. If you're in it for glory, if you're in it for the prize of the best, the best at whatever you're doing, you're probably not going to get there as uh, in relationships. You might, if you're like an Olympic medalist and you're going for the gold medal, that, that's probably a good idea to aim for the gold instead of bronze or fourth place or whatever else you should go for it. But if you're in a relationship, if you're trying to be the hero, you're trying to be the one that's like just better than everybody else in this whole family, it's probably not going to get you where you need to go. Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Father's Day. I'd like to especially challenge the fathers in their room, but this is for everybody. This is just what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus means you are not only following him, but you're also trying to show the way for someone else. And John Maxwell says that a leader is simply someone who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. If you can do those three things, you're leading somebody. And you need to be. That's what it means to go into all the world and make disciples. It means go into all the world, of course. But to make disciples is you're following Jesus and you're helping others become followers of Jesus and follow you with them. You are knowing the way, you are going the way yourself, and you are showing the way. That's what a good father does. 
That's what a good mother does. That's what a good friend does. That's what a good whatever else. If you are a believer and you're trying to help somebody else find Jesus and follow Jesus, that's what it looks like. The opposite of that mentality, the complete opposite is this silly little story in Acts 19. It just makes me laugh. It doesn't sound like love. It doesn't sound like Jonathan. It doesn't sound like anything, but this is a pretty funny story. This is the opposite of where you wanna go. I'm just gonna read it straight out of the scriptures. Acts 19, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So far, so good. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. See a problem in there, any? They don't believe in Jesus. All they want is the glory. They just don't want to lose the exorcist business that they had going on. They don't want Paul to get the credit. They want the credit. And if now the demons are running from whatever, whoever this Jesus is, well, sure, I'll say in the name of Jesus because I want the glory. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Seba were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was an evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I don't know if you've ever been in a fight, but that's how you know you've really lost. <laughs> And these seven guys, they walk into that room and they're expecting to walk out going like this. Yep, yep, the demons run from us. And instead they run out screaming, naked and bleeding. And watch what happened, despite themselves. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. They're like, you better respect that name. You better not be just throwing that thing around. I don't know who this Jesus guy is, but I think I might want to know now. That's a big deal. Let's go back to the story of Saul, I'm sorry, Jonathan and David. They made a covenant and then they renewed that covenant in the midst of all this other chaos that was going on. And a covenant in, in the Bible, and, and even today, we're still under the new covenant. We call the two parts of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word testament can almost be, it's almost the same thing as covenant. This is the first, first system God had of how to interact with people. And this is the second one. This is the old one. This is the new one. But a covenant is a lasting relationship. It's a committed relationship. It's a legal relationship. It's kind of like when you adopt a child or you get married or you become the citizen of a new country, not your, wherever you were born, but a, another country. This is going to stay that way. You know what I'm saying? This is, a, this is locked in. This relationship is locked in. And they made this covenant. And in 1 Samuel 18, uh, David and Jonathan talk about each other, that they love each other like their own souls. Let me just tell you, this is what love looks like. 
is when you actually care about their soul as much as your own. You're as worried about them getting to heaven as you're worried about yourself getting to heaven. You're as worried about them staying in tune with God and who God created them to be their whole life as you are about doing that for yourself. And they committed to doing that. In 1 Samuel 20, they, they renew it. And this time they just changed the word just slightly different. He says that they love each other as much as their own life. That's what love looks like. You'd rather die than stop loving that person. You'd rather die than break a promise to that person. You'd rather die than be selfish in that situation. You're not going to. And what happened was David had actually several wives and a whole mess of kids. We don't know if Jonathan had more than one. The Bible doesn't tell us. We know he has at least one wife and at least one kid named Mephibosheth who survived. And one of their promises in this covenant was whichever one of us survives all this, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be David, but whichever one of us survives all this mess will take care of the other person's family just like they were their own. And so when Jonathan died in 2 Samuel, you see that what happened was David, unlike all the other kings of the day who had tracked down the last heir and killed them off, he said, has there been any, anybody from Saul's family, especially Jonathan's family that survived? And he brought this kid Mephibosheth. It's a whole nother story. I wish I had more time to go into that one. I'll bring it up on another day. But they had been so sure that David was going to kill all of Saul's descendants that they actually hurt Mephibosheth as a baby as they were running away when David became king. So he grew up with all kinds of physical problems because they didn't have a way to fix those things, fix those injuries back then. But David adopts Mephibosheth into his family. He, once he finds out that he's still alive, he brings him and he lives in the palace. He eats at the table with David and his closest family members. He, he takes care of him. He restores all the land that belonged to Saul and Jonathan to this kid Mephibosheth. He takes care of them honestly better than he takes care of his own kids. Because he kept that promise. And when Jonathan and Saul finally get killed in battle, David writes a song and actually makes everybody in Israel learn the song and sing it. It's a really strange first move as the new king. And part of the lyrics in there is he say, he, they all have to sing this song about how wonderful Jonathan was and how amazing his love was. It was better than the love of women. That's really confused a lot of people. But here's what he's saying. I promise you, I've studied this so much with a wide open mind. I've really, really researched this. I've gone down all the rabbit holes. I promise you, this is what he's saying. David's way of loving women was really broken. And if you look at how women loved David, that was also pretty broken. He was also betrayed by them. He, he, had, only, he had only experienced selfish Cowardly love, mean love with women. But with Jonathan, it wasn't a romantic thing. It wasn't a sexual thing. It wasn't anything in that direction at all. But he had experienced somebody who was brave and wise and godly and selfless and relentless 
to a fault. He said, I've never seen anybody love like that. Nobody but God. That's what love looks like. That's why we tell these stories so that we know what it really looks like. It reminds us of God himself. And that's why Jesus Christ said things like, love one another as I have loved you. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I have loved you as the Father loved me. Love one another as the Father has loved me. Do you sound familiar? Over and over and over again. Our love should look like Jesus. Our love should look like the way God loves us. Our love should be brave and wise and relentless every single time. The night that Jesus went to die for us, he prayed for his disciples. And in the middle of that prayer, he switches and prays for us. Here's what he prayed. I ask not only on behalf of all of these, but also on behalf of all of those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Brothers and sisters, I know the world is broken. It breaks my heart every day. It's not the way it should be in so many different directions. And I understand. And I, there is, if, if it sounds, ever sounds judgmental or anything, it's, please know that that's not my intention. But we point back to the ideals of scripture because that's who we were created to be. That's who our creator is. That's what he has empowered us to be. And I'm not dissing all the fathers out there who have just been jerks. I'm not dissing all the fathers who are trying their best and still failing. I'm just saying this is the ideal. Dads, are you listening to me? You always choose the bravest, the wisest, the godliest choice. You choose to be relentless in your love. You choose to be selfless in your love. And that has nothing to do with how your family treats you. That has nothing to do with the choices your children make. That has nothing to do with what the world thinks about it. That has to do with you following the example of Jesus and trying to pass that on. And brothers and sisters, if you're a dad or a mom or a person, a a kid, a teen, whoever you are, this is the same thing. As we help each other through life, this is what it looks like. We own this vision that Jesus himself gave us and we try to live this way. I don't know what each one of us needs to do in our hearts this morning to get a little closer to that ideal, but I invite you to take some steps in that direction this morning. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. If that's the case, would you come forward? There's going to be somebody right there off camera to talk to you and we'll walk you through that. Maybe you have got some other big decisions you need to make. Same thing. If you just want prayer and you don't want anybody to see it happen and you just want prayer, come to the back. I'll personally be back there in a second. But would you, would you take this moment while we sing this song and would you just say to God, look, I'm going to play my part Well, no matter what anybody else thinks about me, 
I'm going to love and I'm going to work with others for the greater good, no matter whether they want to team up or not. If they don't, that's fine. But whoever's going to be on team love, I'm going to work with them. And I'm not going to look for the glory. I'm going to just build the kingdom of God. Whatever steps you need to take to get a little closer to that ideal this morning, would you make it? Be brave, be wise, be godly and do it this morning.